The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Question that arose for me is, how do I get on Justice Sotomayor's email blast? Uh, <laughs> curious minds okay, would like talk. to know. <laughs> I suspect Melissa is already on them, although I don't think she's going to tell us if she is. She's just being conspicuously silent. Her face is giving nothing away. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We are your hosts. I'm Kate Shaw. I'm Leah Littman. And I'm Melissa Murray. We have a great show for you today, so let me just give you the brief rundown. We'll start off, as always, with breaking news, and then we're going to recap some of the opinions that just came down, as well as a recap of the oral arguments from the December sitting. And then finally, we're going to do some court culture, which is going to be more news from the Supreme Court. So... This is going to sate all of your appetites for the court before we go on a holiday hiatus. So the first thing we wanted to cover is some breaking news, although it's not so breaking at this point, and that is the wrap-up of the election law cases that made their way to the Supreme Court. In particular, the Supreme Court denied Texas leave to file the original jurisdiction case that Texas had filed against Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia. The court issued this cursory explanation for the denial. The state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. That reasoning, of course, is what Ellie Mistal flagged as the most deficient in their complaint. Um, and a part of me imagined the court standing over a soup counter shouting, no coup for you, you know, while issuing this short <laughs> denial. But maybe that was just me. That statement was more than the court usually says when it denies leave to file an original jurisdiction case in February when it denied in Arizona versus California. It just said the motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied. Um, and it just seemed like an important signal from the court that this kind of case is not how you try to overturn an election. <laughs> yeah, you would hope that that message is going to land. We will see. Um, and if some of the court was announcing no coup for you, maybe, maybe Justice Alito and Justice Thomas disagreed a little bit with that message. It wasn't totally clear. So they issued a separate statement. Uh, their statement said, in my view, this is a Lido statement, actually, but Thomas joined him. In my view, we do not have discretion to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within our original jurisdiction. I would therefore grant the motion to file the bill of complaint, but would not grant other relief. And I express no view on any other issue. So a couple of interesting things about this. One, it wasn't captioned as a dissent. 
which I thought was pretty interesting. It was a statement. Now, Thomas and Alito have actually both previously taken the position that the court has to at least allow states to file their complaints in original jurisdiction cases. It's not discretionary. And when they've done that, I haven't checked all the instances, but when they did that in the Arizona versus California case earlier this year, they captioned it as a dissent. So I thought it was interesting that they didn't do so here. Um, And they said and maybe didn't have to say that they wouldn't grant any other relief. So I think it was possible to read that as siding with, you know, in some sense, the majority or the rest of the court's view that there was no relief that could appropriately be granted in this case. There were some dissenters from that view uh, in the commentariat who said, well, no, they were just talking about the specific relief with respect to the Electoral College uh, and with respect to electors that they wouldn't grant on an emergency basis, but they weren't signaling any agreement with what the rest of the court seemed to be saying. Um, And the, the fact that they said, I express no view on any other issue, I think, was seized upon by those who wish to see some support in the Alito and Thomas statement for this, you know, ill fated mission that the state of Texas and a lot of other states and a majority of the Republican representatives in the House um, seem to be on. It was like a little chicken coup for their soul. (laughs) (laughs) I thought maybe this was just sort of preserving a position on the scope of original jurisdiction for the future. Just, you know, they have said before that they don't think that the court has broad discretion to deny or to dismiss a claim brought under its original jurisdiction. And I thought they were just simply preserving that. But it did raise a lot of eyebrows um, across the commentariat. Um, You know, I think maybe some people thought that they were sort of throwing a bone to everyone trying to please all sides. But these two are not the two who seem interested in pleasing all sides at all. So I think this was just, you know, their deal and maybe just preserving that one position. I think that's probably right. All right. So after this case came down, um, predictably, uh, the right-wing media ecosystem had a meltdown. And some people started saying some pretty extreme things. Um, For example, Alan West, the chairman of the Texas Republican Party, issued a statement where he appeared to suggest that, quote unquote, perhaps law abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution. That sounds remarkably like creating a confederacy. Have we seen that before? (laughs) This is all new to me. Um, Not ringing any bells. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was when the Pennsylvania filing in this case used the term seditious, right, to describe what Texas was trying to do here. And that's strong language, but I don't think it was uncalled for. And some of the reaction after the court denied leave to file, I think, just vindicated the Pennsylvania and other states' um, position to take this very seriously and to suggest that it sort of walked up to the line of, you know, posing an existential threat to the union. Because some of the rhetoric, like this Texas rhetoric coming out of it, was really consistent with that, you know, expansive reading of what it is Texas was trying to do here. Some of the kind of eye-rolling about how unlikely this case was to succeed seemed to sort of echo some of the rhetoric surrounding the Texas versus California challenge to the Affordable Care Act, which is to say, well, this is, you know, a obviously doomed effort and no one should take it seriously. And I just think like when states are walking into the Supreme Court and asking for specific relief, we all have to take it pretty seriously. And I think it was right of Pennsylvania and the other states not to just kind of dismiss or give the back of the hand to this kind of effort, but to take it really seriously and to suggest that it was, you know, dangerous and seditious. Well, when you can't succeed, you should think about seceding. <laughs> I thought you were going to say 
you should coo 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 again, but uh, that doesn't really work. Um, <laughs> Nothing uh, succeeds like a lack of success. <laughs> um, related to the meltdown, we should also mention a rumor circulating on social media that a mm. source in the Supreme Court allegedly reported a screaming match in the Supreme Court conference room with Chief Justice Roberts browbeating his colleagues into denying leave to file the Texas case. According to the source... The justices, as they always do, went into a closed room to discuss you know, cases they're taking or do debate. But when the Texas case was brought up, he said he heard screaming through the walls as Justice Roberts and the other liberal justices were insisting that this case not be taken up. Um, and the reason, the, the words that were heard through the wall um, when Justice Thomas and Justice Alito were citing uh, Bush versus Gore from John Roberts were, I don't give up about that case. I don't want to hear about it. At that time, we didn't have riots. I don't know where to start with that rumor. Uh, to begin with, the justices are not meeting in person, so this is literally impossible. Um, and of all the justices, the chief is not the one who has heard screaming through the walls. So it just has zero ring of plausibility to it. That being said, if it did happen and anyone has audio, I would love to use it as my ringtone. <laughs> Um, we should also talk about um, some of the commentary about this decision. So there was a lot of commentary about um, how the system had actually worked. And, and, you know, we've heard so much over the course of the last couple of years about the failure of norms and the breakdown of different codes of conduct, but, but that we could really always count on these systems, including the courts, to be fail-safes. Um, and many people were saying that's exactly what happened in this particular instance. Um, what do you think of this, Leah? I know you have some views. I just think that's really bonkers to say, well, the courts did not throw out the results of a democratic election and install the loser. Therefore, rah, 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 courts. I mean, goodness, like how low is the bar? And I realize it's gotten lower and lower, but we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that all is well in the courts and they are here for the preservation of our democracy, again, just because they were unwilling to throw out the results of a margin-proof victory through litigation. Yeah, and, and a number of other commentators echoed that. So Ellie Mastal yes. in A Piece in the Nation and Jay Willis in The Atlantic and Linda Greenhouse in The New York Times all said that you know, this was a victory, but this this was not a shout it from the rooftops kind of moment for democracy. This was just like so egregious that if it had actually worked, it, it, that would have been more shocking. Um, this this worked exactly as it should have, but that alone was not reason for cheering. Yeah, and and I mean that in some ways it's just dumb luck that there were four states and not one state that or right. th that at least three states would need to be flipped in order to change mm -hmm. the outcome of the election. If it had just this is the point that Ellie made, if just one state were in the mix, I think things would have looked potentially quite different. I also think it's dumb luck to move away from courts for a minute that. You know, Brad Raffensperger and not Chris Kobach was a secretary of state in Georgia, right, overseeing these efforts to do all kinds of undemocratic uh, post-election things. Um, and and so, no, this was not some great victory. I think we all managed to sort of democracy sort of lives in the, to fight another day, just I think by sheer dumb luck in many ways. Dodging yeah. bullets. 
Yeah. When you have, you know, a majority of the Republicans in the House signing onto a brief urging courts to throw out the results of an election, it is really hard for me to walk away from that saying, yes, everything is working and all is well. And we should see, you know, so a couple of big deadlines have passed, right? The safe harbor deadline, the actual casting of the electoral ballots in the states on December 14th. The next big date to keep our eye on is January 6th, when Congress actually opens and counts the votes. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what potential shenanigans the Republicans in Congress, right, might have in store for us. But I think we should figure out if, if it makes sense for us to kind of convene something to talk about it, depending on what it looks like going up, you know, in the run up to the 6th. Because... That could be another sort of stress test, I think. Um, I, I'm not really worried about it, but I also don't think that it's necessarily smooth sailing from here until January 20th. Well, on January 6th, though, for anything to happen that would be consequential, you need both houses of Congress to take up the matter. And as long as there's divided control, that seems like there's a fail-safe there. Well, a failsafe in terms of actually handing right. the, the right. election but not to Trump, in terms absolutely. Of like making this but in terms of actually, yeah. you know, drawing out the process and creating yes. a lot of just high drama, as long as you have a single senator who's willing to go along with that effort, uh, I think that they could really at least delay the kind of finalization. Maybe not for more than a number of hours, um, potentially days, but. I'm not worried about anything that could actually change the outcome of the election happening on January 6th. Do you remember that book, Kate, like Llama Llama Bedtime Drama or whatever? Do you remember? Did you read that book to your kids ever? <laughs> there's Llama Llama Holiday Drama. Yeah. There's Llama, there's, there's Llama Llama Red Pajamas, yes, the original. Yes, there's a lot of spinoffs. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, like when the mom says, please stop all your llama drama and be patient yeah. with your mama. Like that's how yes. I feel. Yeah. Stop all yes, your llama yes. drama. <laughs> but I think that there might be more llama drama in store is the problem. Mm. Okay. In actual good for democracy news, uh, Attorney General William Barr is uh, announced he is resigning as Attorney General. What do you think happened? It was it was a letter, and I have to say this letter was a whole vibe. Um, so first, it starts off with, "I appreciate the opportunity to update you this afternoon on the department's review of voter fraud allegations at a time." country so deeply divided, it is incumbent on all levels of government and all agencies acting within their purview to do all we can to assure the integrity of elections and promote public confidence in their outcome. Was this snark or was this sycophancy? I don't know. I took it as sycophancy. Like he is like legitimating the efforts to question what happened in the election. Like that's how I took the opening paragraph. But he previously said that there was no evidence of voting fraud. Yeah. But he he's like emboldening people to like continue searching for something that isn't there and like asking this question to cast a doubt on the election when like, again, we know there just wasn't that problem. I I, don't, I actually viewed it as a little bit more ambiguous, or at least it's kind of cryptic, that paragraph. I because thought so later too. in the letter, he goes on to praise yes. in very explicit terms the president's efforts in a number of other spheres, but doesn't actually endorse the fraud allegations in, you know, at the, at the top of the letter, just says it was great to talk to you about the allegations, <laughs> doesn't tell us what the conversation entailed, us but then, know, like, the readers. But then, like, why say anything? Yeah, and well, I, 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 I found it, it so puzzling. I, kind of, I thought that might have been snark because the rest of it is extravagant in its praise. Your record is all the more historic because you accomplished it in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. Your 2016 victory speech in which you reached out to your opponents and called for working together for the benefit of the American people was immediately met by a partisan onslaught against you in which no tactic, no matter how abusive and deceitful, was out of bounds. I mean, like, I See, I'm so mad this letter came after you guys did the special episode with I know, Ellie so that you couldn't do a dramatic reading of the whole thing. Reading. Like, that was wrong. Obviously, I'm still working out my own feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I yeah, mean, but this is a lot. This is a whole mood. But why do you think he resigned? Do you think he was forced out? It's certainly possible. The president has obviously soured on him and, and, and is displeased with his failure to manufacture, you know, actual fraud evidence that would embolden the president in his efforts. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe that was the last straw. It's possible. Hmm. You know, it's interesting that, he, that if so, the president didn't say so, right? Although the president doesn't actually relish firing people to their faces, as, as we've now all learned, um, he does like to claim credit for departures. And no. he sort of allowed Barr to tell the story about more time with his family over the holidays. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's entirely possible to me that Barr wanted out before this kind of pardon palooza right. that we seem yeah, to be that's what I thought too. in the early stages of. And if, you know, if Trump is very seriously considering his self-pardon, I think it's possible that Barr, you know, wanted out before that happened. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a real possibility. I also like the possibility that Bill Barr is going to take his family on a Clark Griswold style vacation across the United States this Christmas. And, you know, they're going to be in no the masks. station watching, you know, Holiday Road. <laughs> the whole thing. That's what I think. Whatever he does next, you know, a tenure that began with this preposterous and fawning letter. Do you remember that audition? Yeah. Letter? Oh, yeah. With a preposterous with and one? fawning yeah. letter. <laughs> so should we move on to opinions um, and argument recaps? Yes. So the first joint opinion and argument recap we wanted to cover um, because the court issued a decision so quickly in the case uh, is Trump versus New York, the census case. This is a challenge to the presidential memo directing the Secretary of Commerce to prepare a report excluding non-citizens from the population base that will be used for apportionment, among other things. Uh, And it was issued after the big Supreme Court loss over the citizenship question in Department of Commerce versus New York, which invalidated Commerce Department's effort to add a citizenship question to the census. Commerce had maintained it did so to enforce the Voting Rights Act when everybody knew they did so in order to enable apportionment that would exclude non-citizens. And the court, again, invalidated the citizenship question. Okay, so case was argued November 30th and on an expedited schedule because the memo called for the secretary to deliver the report to the president by December 31st. And then after that date, the president must submit a report to Congress within seven days of the beginning of Congress's term, which will be January 10th or 11th. And then the clerk of the House um, must, within two weeks, send certificates to each of the states, notifying them about how many seats in Congress each state can get. And on December 18th, which was a Friday morning, we got an opinion in the case. So again, very quick turnaround on this. Um, We know that the court was moving quickly because they added an extra opinion announcement date to the calendar at the last minute. And as Leah and I predicted when we covered this case in the term preview, the court's conservatives ended up punting the case, finding that it was not justiciable. Specifically, they said that the challenge wasn't ripe because it was not yet clear what the plaintiff's injury would be or whether they would even be injured at all. So again, this is a per curiam opinion, so we don't have an identified author here. Um, But it's worth noting that the administration's memo, as you'll recall, directs the Secretary of Commerce and the Census Bureau to exclude all undocumented persons from the census count to the extent lawful and feasible. And the government argued, and the court here agreed, that we don't really know how many or which undocumented individuals are actually going to be feasibly excluded. So would it be persons in ICE detention? Unclear. Persons subject to final orders of removal? Don't know. Persons denied parole in the United States? We don't know. And since we don't know, we don't know if there will be an impact on the apportionment of congressional seats or federal monies or anything like that. So we don't actually know. 
if anyone's going to be injured by this. And the court also pointed out that the memo qualified the directive, quote unquote, by providing that the secretary should gather information to the extent practicable and that aliens should be excluded to the extent feasible. Any prediction about how the executive branch might eventually implement this is really no more than conjecture at this time, the court said. And that we don't know basically how many persons the government is actually going to determine it's feasible to exclude. And so according to the court, everyone agrees by now that the government cannot feasibly implement the memorandum by excluding the estimated 10.5 million aliens without lawful status. And that in turn raises some concerns about the remedy. Um, An injunction would prohibit the secretary from informing the president in the 141B report of the number of aliens without lawful status. And in addition to implicating the president's authority under the opinions clause, the injunction reveals that a source of any injury to the plaintiffs is the action that the secretary or president might take in the future to exclude unspecified individuals from the apportionate base, not the policy itself in the abstract. This is just like a little aside, but I did think it was very weird for the court to invoke the opinions clause in its short opinion. It wasn't an issue in the opinions clause didn't come up in the oral argument. It was barely in the briefs. Um, I'm not sure what like nefarious groundwork is being laid here, but it felt like something. So the opinions clause didn't come up specifically, but several justices liken the injunction to something like a gag order um, on the president's aides to the president. And I took that to be gesturing in this direction. And my concern is this is going to end up being some kind of like subterfuge attack on the ability of courts to enjoin the president's subordinate officers as a way of effectively enjoining the president because given the court's like expansive interpretation of the First Amendment and what speech is, you know, they could say, well, all of these injunctions are effectively like cabining speech, are effectively gag orders, and that implicates the opinions clause because what lower courts have done is issue injunctions against the president's subordinate officers in order to avoid having to you know, issue an injunction against the president, which they don't know, you know, whether is, is permissible. I don't know. No, I think that I think that's a great point. And yeah, it, it, for sure, Underwood kept getting pressed on this question. Well, is this a gag order, really? Which is what? The, and she said, no, 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 it's not. Um, but but the clause itself didn't come up. But I think that's definitely right. Sort of whether, however you want to frame the constitutional infirmity with one of these injunctions, whether right, it's like a First Amendment grounded or opinions clause grounded or some intersection of the two uh, kind of concern, right? I think that that's a very astute observation, and maybe that's why it made me so uncomfortable to yeah. see its kind of gratuitous invocation in this per curiam opinion that didn't require it at all. They're talking about the speculativeness of the count and thus the harm that flows from it. Um, And so there's really no need to say anything about this provision at all. Well, why not speculate about some possible constitutional (laughs) infirmities with a remedy? Why not? Why not just shoot shoot the shit? Hey, yeah, Friday, (laughs) December 18th. (laughs) One, I think, critical takeaway that's important to understand is that the Supreme Court in no way made a determination that this memo is lawful. Um, If it is the case that the president even tries uh, to do something along these lines, which is a big question because it's not at all clear what specific information the Census Bureau is going to be able to provide um, about undocumented individuals in different categories in time. Um, but if that does happen, um, and if the president tries to make adjustments to the report he sends to Congress in reliance on that data, there will absolutely be additional litigation. But but Kate, if there is additional litigation, there's still this open question of like whether you can actually intervene later after the memo is transmitted 
to the president. And this is all, again, part of what Leah just mentioned, which is this whole issue of whether you can actually enjoin the president. So post-apportionment litigation, I think that there would there would have to be a challenge. I mean, there's a couple things. One, I think it's the case that I think it's an open question whether a court can enjoin a president. Um, the Supreme Court has studiously avoided giving a direct answer to that question. Um, the Solicitor General for New York, Barbara Underwood, seemed sort of strangely to concede or at least to suggest that there was a very good chance that it was, you know, outside of the court's authority to do so. Um, I think that probably was a little bit more of a concession that she needed to make. But in any event, she basically said, look, it's irrelevant because what courts do is direct, this is Talia's point, direct subordinates to the president you know, declare what the law is and assume that the president will abide by the law and that that's sufficient essentially to achieve the same objectives as in joining the president directly. Um, you know, I, I think it's right that because the this would be post-apportionment, there would be, you know, a question of sort of to whom or against whom the injunction would be directed. But Franklin versus Massachusetts, right, which is the big census case from the 90s, did involve a post-apportionment challenge. Now, there the court, you know, didn't invalidate what the president had done. Um, but it's certainly the case, at least, that courts can entertain post-apportionment challenges to sort of census determination. So that, I think, is clear. This is the whole question that Jeff Wald was talking about in um the oral argument, like the, the whole unscrambling of the egg once the apportionment process had been undertaken after the transmittal of the memo. So this is, again, part of the issue and would still be a part of the issue, even if this were litigated again. With respect to unscrambling the egg, I think it's right that if you, you know, if the litigation took months and months, such that these numbers had already gone to the states, then I think it would be very difficult to unscramble the egg. But so long as you know, the House is still in the process of making its calculations with respect to sort of how many seats each state is entitled to, um, then I think it's not at all too late. And, and certainly it, it remains the case that the numbers need to be generated in a fashion that doesn't violate the Constitution or statutes. And we should also note there are doubts about whether President Trump is going to have the information in hand by the deadlines, the memorandum requests, um, and also doubts about whether he will even have the information in hand by the time he leaves office, um, in which case it will be quite easy for the Biden administration to reverse it. Um, if, however, President Trump does get the information, it will be harder but not impossible um, for President-elect Biden to reverse this. Um, some leaked documents suggest that you know the earliest release dates are somewhere end of January, maybe even beginning of February. And this, of course, is going to span the transition period. And so it's just not clear exactly, you know, when this information will be available. Yeah, I, I mean, I just I've been wondering for weeks, I'm sure you guys too, sort of what exactly the dynamic inside the Census Bureau right. is right now. Right. So Wall said repeatedly to the justices, you know, they're working feverishly to try to generate the reports that we are requesting. And are they? I mean, I just, you know, this is a, I think, pretty clearly lawless directive. Oh, yeah. And I think that these sort of conscientious, hardworking officials inside the Census Bureau who already were sort of pressed into service of this unlawful mission with respect to the citizenship question and raised real questions we know from the district court litigation uh, about the directives that they were receiving. I imagine those same dynamics are at play right now. So now, do I think that they are outright refusing to abide by the request to compile this data? No, of course not. But I imagine that they are raising the same kinds of concerns that they raised during the you know, citizenship proceedings. And all, all of that internal friction, I think, makes me at least think that they're not likely, the administration is not likely to be able to generate sort of much in the way of data that, they, that would be usable, even if they were able to get, say, you know, the numbers of detained individuals, right, in ICE custody or with, you know, orders of removal. But I think that's probably it. Even the DACA population, 
I'm not sure because there's, you know, it's not just individuals who are in DACA status, but it's matching those individuals with census respondents. And that seems to me a major undertaking. So I guess that um, maybe transitions to what do we think of the court's reasoning? Um, Justice Breyer filed a dissent in which Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan joined, and he managed to get this drafted in like two weeks um, with everything still remote. So good on Justice Breyer and good on Justice Breyer's law clerks. Um, I also think they're just kind of right here. Um, You know, the government did not at all back away from the idea that it was pursuing the maximum possible enforcement of this memorandum. You know, the stated goal of the memo is to diminish political influence and congressional representation of states where undocumented individuals live. The president announced that they were gathering this information more than a year ago, um, and they've spent over a year collecting records. And, you know, Melissa, you noted the court stated that the government had disavowed trying to exclude all undocumented individuals. And I just don't think that that is correct, as Justice Breyer noted. So we're going to play actually three clips from argument in which both the Chief Justice and Justice Gorsuch asked the government if it was still possible that they would exclude all undocumented individuals, and the government just refused to disavow that. General, uh, just very quickly, should we assume that we're not going to be talking about all illegal aliens in the country, but some subset, some uncertain subset, like the ones in ICE detention? I think it is. I think it is very fair to say, Mr. Chief Justice, that the president has not made a determination yet because we don't know what's feasible. It seems like the one common ground is that the, the 10,000 or whatever number it is currently in ICE detention is something you think will will happen. Beyond that, can you give us any sense of the difficulties or likelihoods? I can't, Justice Gorsuch. I, 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 the Bureau is working very hard, but as I say, until they actually do the comparison, we just won't know how many identifications we're able to make and whether that stands to affect the apportionment. So is it a reasonable reasonable prospect to think that it would be limited to the number of persons currently in ICE detention. I think that's possible, but it is also very possible that they will be able to do more. As I say, we just we don't know at this point. There was all this tension in the government's position that really came out at the oral arguments, um, which just made the SG's arguments really weird, I thought. Like, you know, they didn't disavow an effort to kind of maximally implement the uh, executive order, um, but they sort of said, look, we don't know what we can do. Maybe we can only do very little. Maybe we won't be able to even do enough to change a single congressional seat or you know, any federal funds. And so that's why the case isn't ripe. But also that we want you to reach out and decide in the abstract that the president can do this we think clearly unlawful thing, right? That's obviously not what the SG thinks, but that's what we think um, that he really wants to do, but maybe can't even do to the fullest extent of his desires. Like it was just such a strange position that the government was in throughout. And, you know, it did seem like Breyer kind of really captured that in his dissent. Also in the dissent, uh, Justice Breyer mentioned some other exchanges from oral argument in which both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan emphasize that the government has quite a lot of information on undocumented individuals, even though it might not have the matching in place. It has has these records for a super long time, which might make matching easier. You're saying, well, yes, there's this small category of ICE detainees. That seems uh, pretty feasible. Uh, but that's just uh, uh, tens of thousands of people. So how about a few others? Um, As I understand it, there are um, almost 200,000 persons who are subject to final orders of removal. Um, uh, Will the Bureau be able to report on those? 
It is working very hard to try to report on that subset, yes. Okay, there are 700,000 DACA recipients. Will the um, Bureau be able to report on those? It is working on that too. Uh, we can't be certain at this point, and we don't know what the president will decide to do with respect to that set. He has. Right. I mean, you. Do, I mean, obviously, you have papers, all kinds of records on those people. Uh, so I, I would think that that sounds pretty feasible to me. Another thing I just wanted to note about the Breyer descent is, you know, he kind of took it up a notch. Uh, he brought some heat. Um, he made it a little spicy. Sriracha. So. Sriracha yeah. Steve. Sriracha <laughs> Steve. Scott, I got hot sauce in my bag. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think a very pointed remark in the dissent was, whereas here the government acknowledges it is working to achieve an allegedly illegal goal, this court should not decline to resolve the case simply because the government speculates that it might not fully succeed. That captured the exact tension, right? That was yes. like so that so permeated the arguments. Um, it, it also captured yeah. perfectly like the malevolence, incompetence, you know, thread that has permeated this administration, which is they are clearly trying to do malevolent, illegal things. They're just doing so, so incompetently that it might save them and us, but that shouldn't work to their benefit here. Such a great point. At the end of the opinion, he also mentioned how dangerous it is to the democracy to mess with the census. Um, So I also thought that that closing was notable. Since we didn't get it actually to recap the oral argument, which was actually a very eventful oral argument, there are just a couple of things that we wanted to highlight before letting them get totally overtaken by the opinion itself. Uh, one is that strict scrutiny guest and low-key star of the fight, Dale Ho, argued. Dale um, F them up, Ho. Get his <laughs> That's right. I forgot his Say street his name. name. Say his name. <laughs> Uh, Dale, fuck them up, ho, argued and was just truly spectacular. Like the amount of knowledge he has about this entire process really came through um, and he was just able to answer everything, you know, very well and very efficiently. Um, Second. As we noted in our episode with Alexandra Petri, this was the oral argument where Justice Alito actually interrupted one of the other justices, Justice Sotomayor. The chief justice had tried to end Justice Alito's questioning period by calling on Justice Sotomayor, but Justice Alito kept going. Justice Sotomayor? If I can can move on to my my second point. And then he finally gets him to stop by asking him again twice to discontinue. That person is a resident like any other undocumented person. Justice Sotomayor? Uh, Justice Sotomayor? So, Leah, it's possible that Justice Alito didn't hear the Chief Justice asking him to stop multiple times. Um, But I think it's important to contrast this with an earlier episode where Justice Breyer was wrongfully cut off, cut off by mistake, and he actually apologized for being (laughs) injured in this way. He apologized and then he agreed to forego the questioning time that the chief justice gave back to him. Whereas Justice Alito, I think he tried to keep going because after the chief says Justice Sotomayor, Justice Alito says chief as if to try to plead his case again. So I think he heard it. I think he heard it. I mean, he also was like, I have six more questions and I only got to ask three of them. Like, it's one thing to to slip one little follow-on question in. This is is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, There did seem to be 
a lot of frustration with the questioning format in this particular argument um, that also came out in Justice Kavanaugh's questioning of Dale Ho when he used the first moments of his questions to Dale to actually direct questions to the Solicitor General that he wanted the SG to answer. In an unstructured format, he could have asked those questions during the SG's questioning when they came to him, but apparently they came up afterwards. Um, and in this new format, you can't ask questions in the rebuttal. I actually thought that was smart of Kavanaugh because it did get wall to address his question during the short mm-hmm. rebuttal. So like, it's actually a, a clever way, I think, to slip in one additional round of questioning um, if something kind of comes up and you don't get to directly respond to it. Um, one like tiny little caddy point, I mentioned Barbara Underwood before, a lot of the time this court calls state solicitor general General X. She was just called Ms. Underwood. Um, uh, you know, Barrett called Jeff Wall, the acting solicitor general, General Wall, at the beginning of the argument, and then didn't actually call her anything. Gorsuch called her Ms. Underwood, although I think he sometimes just uses names for state SGs. Um, But look, she has been the SG of New York for 13 years. She was the deputy SG and then acting SG in the in the SG's office in the federal government at the end of the Clinton administration. The Texas Solicitor General, Kyle Hawkins, has been a lawyer for like 10 years, and Barrett definitely called him General Hawkins when he was before the court. So we need to show Underwood the same respect at the very least. Put some respect on her name. (laughs) Exactly. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Missouri legislators said the quiet part out loud with their total abortion ban. Quote, Almighty God is the author of life, end quote. They also said, quote, God doesn't give us a choice in this area. He is the creator of life. Plus, quote, from the biblical side of it, life does occur at the point of conception, end quote. Religious extremists are forcing all of us to live by their beliefs, as in the Alabama IVF case. Americans United for Separation of Church and State exists to stop this kind of abuse. On the eve of the 50th anniversary of Roe, Americans United and their allies sued Missouri, representing 14 clergy from seven different denominations. AU's lawsuit challenges Missouri's abortion bans as a violation of the separation of church and state. AU's guiding light is freedom without favor, equality without exception. AU works with partners on all sides of the aisle, of all religions and none, to ensure the wall between church and state stands strong for all. Keep up with this ongoing case at au.org. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 
All right, do we want to go on to the next case? This one was also really spicy and prompted a lot of commentary in the Twitterverse. So this was Nestle versus Doe, a challenge to the alien tort statute involving child slavery. So this is a case about whether a corporation can be sued for violations of international law obligations under the alien tort statute. Um, and here, the corporation is being sued on the theory that it aided and abetted child slavery by buying cocoa from and otherwise supporting plantations that used child slavery. Uh, arguing on behalf of the corporation is Neil Katyal, who has become something of a resistance hero for his role in the travel ban case um, and appearances on news media. Uh, and this precipitated a long dialogue on social media and elsewhere about whether it's fair to criticize lawyers for the positions they argue for, a point I hope we'll return to later. Um, we briefly alluded to before in talking about the election litigation, uh, but we just have too much to cover today. In the case, there was some brutal questioning for Katyal's position, particularly from Justice Kagan. Child slavery, not uh, aiding and abetting it, but the offense itself, is that a violation of a specific universal and obligatory norm? We're, we're not, yes, I think we're not challenging that here. It's just the Okay, so if that's right, could a former child slave bring a suit against an individual slaveholder under the ATS? So they, if it were in a, if it weren't extraterritorial and it wasn't yeah, a corporate no problem person, extraterritorial, yeah. no problem aiding and abetting, just a straight suit. Yeah, correct. Okay, and could this uh, same ch former child slave under the same circumstances bring a suit against ten slaveholders? Uh, you know, if they if they met the you know the requirements under the, the law, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, if they if it was okay, so if, if, if you could bring a suit against ten slaveholders. When those 10 slaveholders form a corporation, why can't you bring a suit against the corporation? Because the corporation requires an individual form of liability under a norm, a specific norm of, of, under international law, which doesn't exist here. I think so. so and I, I those, guess what I'm asking is, like, what sense does this make? This goes back to Justice Breyer's question. What sense does this make? This just illustrates the absurdity of his position, but of course, that position is essentially what the court took for foreign corporations in the companion case. Um, so as absurd as that seems, it's not clear that that absurdity will land on at least five members of the court. As Leah was just saying, the court in the Jesner case, right, already held that foreign corporations can't be sued under the alien tort statute for this kind of conduct. The question is just whether they will extend that to hold that U.S. corporations like Nestle or Cargill can't be sued under the alien tort statute either. Yeah. So so what do we think, based on the oral argument, the court is likely to do here? I still think there are five votes to say the suit can't proceed. Um, I'm not exactly clear what the basis for the decision will be. But in that, um, you know, Jesner case, as we mentioned in the preview, Justice Gorsuch had expressed a view that there's actually no jurisdiction over these kinds of lawsuits since they don't raise federal questions. Um, and I just don't know how the plaintiffs will get five votes, you know, with him already ruled out. Um, and I think other justices possibly sharing a similar position. Yeah, he, he definitely did write to say that in in. Jesner, but he did also seem kind of skeptical, Gorsuch, that is, in the oral argument, um, you know, and that there's nothing in the text of the alien tort statute that specifically exempts corporations at all, that maybe foreign corporations raise different questions, but that if, you know, U.S. individual persons can be sued under the tort statute, maybe, you know, U.S. Uh, corporations can as well, since there's no distinction in the statute. I kind of read him to be a little bit in play, but I'm not at all sure. Yeah, I just like, I, unless it was a diversity jurisdiction suit, you know, there wouldn't be federal question jurisdiction under his theory. And so I just don't know how that, you know, would play out um, right. here. 
Um, all right, we got a lot of cases to cover. So should we move on to Van Buren versus United States? You guys previewed that one pretty extensively, and it's a very interesting case. Melissa, you want to take this one? Yes, it's a very dishy case, as I said before. This was the case about whether accessing information for an unauthorized purpose violates the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And as we noted in the preview, the case involves some juicy facts. A police officer, Nathan Van Buren, ran a license check for a friend who said he wanted Van Buren to check out the information of this exotic dancer that the friend was interested in dating. And so Van Buren runs the background check on her, but oh, it was actually part of an FBI sting operation. And he was charged with violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. At oral argument, um, again, there was a ton of debate about the actual reach of the statute and what Congress had actually intended the statute to encompass. And Justice Kagan, for example, wanted to know if checking sports scores is really the same thing as obtaining information under the spirit of the statute. Um, Yes, since the information is obtaining under the statute. The government also offered up a limit um, it had previously disavowed, namely that the statute applies only to quote-unquote authorization-based systems where individual users are specifically trusted. Um, Leah, you noted a really interesting um, part of the oral argument um, that was seemed like things were looking up for the defendant, perhaps. So I thought the argument was maybe less skewed toward the defendant than I thought it would be when we were discussing the preview. Um, I thought Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor were clearly in the defendant's camp, but I still think there will be a reversal. And, you know, the government's change in position that you just noted, I think, suggests that it realizes it has to offer some limiting principle for this statute because without one, it potentially applies to anything. And we also know that the court doesn't think defendants have to point to actual prosecutions demonstrating like the full, most expansive reach of a statute in order to adopt a more narrowing interpretation. Like that's, you know, what we've seen in prior cases like Yates or Bond or, you know, whatever um, the example is that we want to give. Another theme that seemed to be running through this, and again, this I think goes to the question of what limiting principle would exist, but was that the justices seemed to be grappling with how expansive the scope of this might be in an age where there are all kinds of authorized users who have access to unprecedented amounts of personal information. And there was this one question from Justice Thomas in which he posed basically a scenario in which someone working at a car rental shop um, had access to a GPS, but rather than using it to take on the location of a car, they used it for something else. But why can't you have the exact same thing on the other end? That is that you have authority to access information, but you are limited. That authorization is limited as to what you can do with it. For example, you work for a car rental and you have the access to the GPS, but rather than use it to determine the location of a car that may be missing, you use it to follow a spouse or uh, as in this case, the uh, the use of the information is a problem. So I don't understand why you make the distinction between these two uh, levels or ways that you can have or not have authorization. Do you think it's weird that Justice Thomas wants to know if someone can actually use their authorized information to track down a spouse? Like that, it seems like a very specific <laughs> question. <laughs> well, it was just like the, this. The, 
facts here were fodder for so many yeah. kind of fun hypos. So, you know, Jeff Fisher, who was representing the defendant, suggested that if you did accept the government's argument, you opened up the possibility of all manner of unbounded criminal exposure. So employees who check Instagram at work, if that's an unauthorized use, individuals who misrepresent aspects of themselves, like shave 10 pounds off their weight on their dating profiles, like that maybe because you were trying to obtain interest from, you know, potential dating matches um, in an unauthorized way because you've misrepresented something about yourself, like all of that could potentially give rise to criminal charges. And, you know, Gorsuch, as Leah said, seemed pretty sympathetic to the defendant in this case. And he didn't respond specifically to those hypos, but he definitely seemed concerned about the breadth of the government's reading. And he did situate this case kind of in a line of other cases um, in which the government seemed to be, you know, seeking pretty expansive readings of federal criminal statutes. Um, and the court has, you know, often unanimously invalidated those efforts. Um, you know, he didn't actually mention the Kelly Bridgegate case, which we talked about a lot and also involved faking. Well, we talked you know, about trying. it when we previewed this case. Um. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the court didn't, at least Gorsuch didn't in this uh, colloquy, but maybe, maybe let's play this one as well. I guess I'm, I'm curious about a, a, a bigger picture question. That is, this case does seem to be the latest, as, as uh, the petitioners point out, in a rather long line of cases in recent years in which the government has consistently sought to expand federal criminal jurisdiction in really pretty significantly contestable ways that this court has rejected, whether we're talking about Marinello or McDonald or Yates or Bond, you pick your favorite recent example. And I'm just kind of curious why we're back here again on a, a, a rather small state crime that, that is prosecutable under state law and perhaps under other federal laws uh, to try and address conduct that, that uh, would be rather, rather, rather remarkable, perhaps making a federal criminal of us all. They all seem to be shadow boxing with the prospect that we just live so much more of our lives online than we ever did. And there's just so much more, I guess, capacity for individuals to one, be authorized users and then also put this information to uses that aren't necessarily authorized. And what does that mean? Yeah. So this conversation has, like, again, made me think that the defendant is definitely going to prevail in this case, although I think you're right, Leah, that it wasn't as lopsided as like the argument in, say, you know, Kelly was. Um, but I'm just not sure exactly how or by how many votes. Right. But that might also partially just be a reflection of this new format when it's a little bit harder to tell where the justices are leaning. Definitely. So another case that we wanted to recap that we had previewed is Edwards versus Vinoy. This is a case about the retroactivity of Ramos versus Louisiana. Um, from argument, it seemed like Justice Gorsuch, Justice Sotomayor, and maybe Stephen Breyer uh, think the rule is retroactive. The first two aren't surprising, of course. Justice Gorsuch had said Ramos was not a new rule in Ramos itself. Um, but Justice Breyer, you continue to surprise and delight. So please don't change your vote. <laughs> Uh, it was a little bit harder to tell um, where the chief and Justice Kagan were, and I think that they are the other justices who are potentially in play here. Um, the chief focused on how the rule from Schreiro, uh, which Melissa and I discussed in the preview, was not retroactive. Um, Schreiro, of course, held that defendants have the right to have a jury find all of the elements of an offense. Um, 
That rule was not retroactive, and the chief says, well, this is a subordinate right to a jury trial, a right to a unanimous jury. And if the greater right isn't retroactive, how could the lesser be? Um, I'm not sure that reasoning is quite right. You know, a right to a jury might not be retroactive, but a rule that you can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex in jury selection could very well be. And the chief seemed to recognize this later when he suggested that unanimity might ensure accuracy in a way that jury versus judge might not. Um, Justice Kagan at one point said it was a steep climb to establish retroactivity. She also said the empirics were sparse on whether this affected conviction. Um, but I'm not actually sure that's true. I just think the defendant's lawyer, Andre Bellinger, did a pretty bad job bringing that out. You know, you have Innocence Project briefs essentially going through all of the exonerations and finding that so many of them involved non-unanimous juries. So we know that the likelihood of convicting an innocent person often involves non-unanimous jury verdicts. Um, but she had also said that, you know, Ramos says you haven't been convicted by unanimous jury. You really haven't been c convicted at all. And maybe that means it's retroactive. So it's just harder to tell where the two of them were leaning. Do you think this is an opportunity for her to kind of, um, I don't know, reestablish her, I guess, progressive bona fides after Ramos? Because Remember, after Ramos, there was a lot of sort of teeth gnashing about her decision to join the chief in Alito and refusing to strike down Apodaca and invalidate the non-unanimous jury rule. Is this, do you think, an opportunity for her to maybe reclaim some of that space? I don't think she really cares that much about establishing her bona fides to progresses. Um, that being said, the fact that she joined the portion of the uh, Alito dissent in Ramos that suggested the majority had devolved into ad hominem attack and that, you know, was essentially anti-anti-racism will just never cease to amaze me. You know, she could have at least joined other portions of it. I told you what I thought about that. I just think like maybe there was there's like her vote was inconsequential in Ramos, yeah. whether whereas here it actually could be incredibly consequential. I wonder if she'll take that opportunity. And one thing to you know, since we're talking, obviously, Ramos is really central to this case. Gorsuch is clearly still not reconciled to the fact that he couldn't convince a majority of the court that Apodaca wasn't a precedent <laughs> at all in Ramos. That it's guy. Weird. It's weird. <laughs> but, like, it's weird to be relitigating that here. But also, obviously, you know, whether Apodaca was a precedent bears on the question of whether yeah. Ramos made new law. So it's quite, you know, it's a it's a relevant issue here. But it's but also, like, he didn't succeed <laughs> there. But it, it made me wonder whether, I don't know what you guys made of this, but, you know, this idea that, now, Apodaca is sort of sui generis because it's this, you know, single justice's vote that, you know. Like Baki? Right. Like Baki. Or, or you know, I think about, do medical services actually a lot mm -hmm. in this context. Uh, yeah. You know, it's Marks. a single sort of, uh, yeah. if you say yeah. it's an idiosyncratic vote uh, for a fifth justice yeah. and only writing for himself. Like, I actually don't think he's talking exactly or shadowboxing exactly with June here. I just I just wonder whether this trying to kind of entrench the idea that certain precedents are in fact not precedents at all is a project that he is engaged in. Um, and I worry about it. Um, again, I, it may be limited to these sort of idiosyncratic circumstances and a few others like Baki and June medical services. Um, but if it's a broader idea that like there's some set of criteria that allow you to circumvent a stare decisis analysis because you have decided that a decision of the court is not, in fact, a precedent at all, um, strikes me as a dangerous road to go down. Neil Danger Gorsuch at it again. <laughs> um, so uh, we also wanted to recap some of the cases we didn't preview because they were argued in the second week of the December sitting. Um, really quickly, there's a super interesting tax remedies case, CIC versus IRS. Um, that oh, I love Leah saying the sentence is super 
interesting tax remedies case. It actually is. It, right? Yeah, it implicates Henry Hart's dialogue about jurisdiction and the federal courts and when federal courts need to have jurisdiction to review the legality of government action that might be Oh my unlawful. God, inject this into my veins. Okay, <laughs> Twice. <laughs> okay, you asked, I will comply. No, no, seriously. It's about the interaction. We do want to hear about it. Go. <laughs> I know you don't, but I'll tell you anyway, quickly. It's about the interaction between the Anti-Injunction Act, which prohibits suits instituted to prevent the assessment or collection of any tax, and the Administrative Procedure Act, which makes judicial review generally available. And in earlier cases, the court had said general administrative law principles apply to tax cases involving the IRS rejecting tax essentialism. So the first question is whether reporting requirements that are antecedent to tax collections fall within the scope of the Anti-Injunction Act, like where the government is asking for information that might subsequently lead to tax collections. And the second is whether, because a future penalty for violating the provision in question is discretionary, it is, in fact, a suit to enjoy an tax, which is generally not discretionary. Um, and the interesting Henry Hart angle is, you know, the companies subject to the guideline have this constitutional argument about whether you need a judicial remedy short of violating the law and defending against an enforcement proceeding. So Henry Hart, for the win, in your veins. Melissa. I just want to note that Leah teaches remedies and... I've never actually seen her so happy before. She's like literally in her element. She's glowing. It's okay. Um, I thought this was interesting uh, because during this oral argument, there was perhaps a little bit of a telephonic hiccup. If there were no penalties, there would be nothing for petitioner to sue about because it, it would, would arguably would not even have Article 3 standing. Unclear if it was screaming, barking, if it was, it was on. Dog. You thought like, it was a dog? I don't know um, if it was on Justice Kagan's line or someone else's. Uh, we need Ashley Feinberg on the case again. <laughs> it's not quite as disruptive as a flushing toilet, but no. I, I was I was intrigued. Like it yeah. got my attention. So the next case we wanted to briefly touch on is Republic of Hungary versus Simon. Uh, this case arises out of a group of Holocaust victims who sued Hungary to recover the value of property lost in Hungary during World War II. Um, it presents two legal questions. Uh, the first is whether a district court can invoke international comedy as grounds to abstain, that is not to decide the case, um, basically or largely on the grounds that plaintiffs did not first try to bring suit in Hungary on the basis of Hungarian law, um, but maybe just as a more general kind of discretionary abstention. Uh, doctrine. Um, the plaintiffs argue that, you know, allowing courts to invoke this kind of comedy doctrine would basically return courts to the pre-Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act world in which immunity decisions by courts were made case by case and in a pretty standardless way. Um, they argue that if comedy might apply in some cases... It applies only where the executive branch expressly requests that a case be dismissed based on specific foreign policy concerns. Uh, and here, despite numerous opportunities to say it would be problematic from the perspective of foreign policy for a court to decide this case, the federal government has declined to do so. You know, that included in this very argument. So the SG has basically taken the position in this case that international comedy-based abstention is a thing that it does survive the enactment of the FSIA, um, but then just refuse to take a position as to whether abstention is appropriate in this case. Jeff, stop trying to make international comedy-based abstention happen. <laughs> <laughs> so at one point, the Chief Justice appeared to get 
audibly annoyed at the government for not being able to specify the alleged foreign relations implications that justify abstention. This question will not surprise you. You you emphasize the significance of uh, the international relations context as a reason for international comedy. But your client, the United States, has scrupulously avoided taking a position uh, on what the court should do, given the international relations uh, context. Uh, this is the perfect time for you to fill that void. Why, why hasn't the government uh, told the courts what the uh, foreign relations impact on the United States is? Well, Your Honor, the United States doesn't feel that it has sufficient information about how the proceedings would unfold on, in Hungary to take... How, how long has the case been going on that you haven't gotten that information yet? Your Honor, the case has been going on... Um, for quite some time. I forget when exactly the complaint was filed in the case. Um, we have the same information that the court has in terms of the party presentation and the expert declarations submitted in the case. Well, I'm sure that's true, but you also have other resources like our embassies, uh, other communications between the two countries uh, at the executive level. I, that's true, Your Honor. Um, I, the State Department simply doesn't feel that it has sufficient information to um, provide the court with Mr. a recommendation. Snyder, what the, the, surely they have as much information as they, they need to make a decision. They just don't want to make a decision. Uh, Your Honor, they, they have informed us that they don't have sufficient information to, to make a decision about that. Our interest in this case, though, is that more broadly, we think that the implications of the Court of Appeals decision would be detrimental to U.S. policy in as much as the Court of Appeals said that courts may never defer, may never abstain on international comedy grounds. And then the second question in the case um, is uh, actually the heart of a related case that the court granted and also heard. Um, and that second question is whether a foreign sovereign's taking property of its own citizens falls within an exemption to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The FSIA says foreign governments are not immune when, quote, rights and property are taken in violation of international law. And in the related case, Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip, Germany and the United States are arguing that this exemption does not apply to so-called domestic takings, i.e. to a country's takings of its own citizens or nationals' property, even when that taking is in violation of international law. Plaintiffs argue that it does and that the exemption applies whenever property rights are taken in violation of international law. And the plaintiffs are arguing here that it was the taking was an act of genocide. Sarah Harrington of Goldstein Russell argued the Hungary case and was, as always, very impressive. Um, and I think she was actually exceptionally impressive in this outing, um, even for her. So if you are looking for a potential SG prospect, Biden administration, um, or deputy SG, we're not making any real recommendations, but this is kind of like a sideline recommendation and she would be fantastic. So just wanted to highlight that. I will also highlight that this case is part of a number of different Holocaust reclamation cases that have come up before the court before. And in fact, um, if you're looking for something to watch during your holiday break, there's actually a movie starring Helen Mirren and Ryan Russells, which we have previously highlighted on one of our SCOTUS Goes to the Movies shows called The Woman in Gold. And it also chronicles um, Holocaust survivors' efforts to reclaim a Gustav Klimt painting that was taken from her family during the Holocaust. I feel like you've pitched this movie before and I still have 
not seen it. Maybe this break I will actually it is, watch it's it. It's a great, it start, I mean, Helen Mirren is glorious. Um, Always, yes. of course. Ryan Reynolds is very attractive. Like, it's a good movie. All right. I'll, I, I promise to try to check it out, Melissa. And that woman from Orphan Black is in it, too. Tatiana. Like, oh, I love her. She's great. Yeah, she's in it, too. She's Helen Mirren as a younger woman. I don't know if folks had predictions about how this case is likely to come out. I mean, I actually thought that Sarah was so good and the SG's weaseliness was so problematic that I actually thought these plaintiffs had a very good chance of prevailing um, on one of their theories, maybe more likely the second. The first theory that they were pushing is that, you know, this international comedy-based abstention is actually no longer, you know, a real doctrine post-FSIA. So even if they don't win on that theory, I can see the court finding that if this doctrine does exist, it's narrow and can only be used when the political branches in some way ask courts to abstain, and here they just haven't. So I don't know if winning on the second theory requires a remand. It seems like it probably does. Um, but either way, I, I felt like I felt good about their chances coming out of the argument. The next case we wanted to preview is Collins versus Mnuchin. Um, this is kind of a follow-on case to the Sela Law versus CFPB case um, from last term, in which the court held that restrictions on the president's ability to remove the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau violated the separation of powers. Uh, the CFPB was a single director agency where that director had extensive powers. Um, and so the question here is whether restrictions on removing the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is an agency that was created in 2008 to oversee the the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, also violates the separation of powers. Um, you know, there's a second question in this case, which is what those restrictions actually are, and particularly whether there are any restrictions that apply to an acting director of the FHFA uh, who has not been confirmed by the Senate. So. Um, the regulated party here is challenging, it's actually some shareholders of, of Fannie and Freddie, um, are challenging an agreement that was entered into by an acting director of the FHFA. Um, so there's this question about whether the acting director was removable at will by the president or instead subject to the same removal protections that apply to the director of the FHFA. The court appointed an amicus, law professor Aaron Nielsen, who needed to be appointed like Paul Clement did in Sela Law because the Trump administration sided with the challengers in both cases. Um, and so Nielsen was arguing that, no, since the provision regarding acting directors doesn't mention removal limitations, unlike the provision regarding the director, um, and he relies in making that argument on super important work by friend of the pod and former guest Anne Joseph O'Connell, who has looked at this question extensively. Um, and so Nielsen argues that there are good reasons to distinguish between actings and appointed directors for these purposes. The statute that creates the director position um, gives the director removal protections. The acting director, by contrast, serves by statute until the return of the director or the appointment of a successor. So it seems pretty clear textually to me that the same removal limitations that exist for the actual Senate-confirmed director don't apply to the acting director. Um, and, you know, Nielsen has a second argument, um, which is basically that even if we say, OK, the acting director does have the same removal limitations as the, you know, real Senate confirmed director, the FHFA is still distinguishable from the CFPB because even though it's headed by a single director, it exercises far less significant powers than the CFPB, you know, and in particular doesn't exercise substantial executive powers. Um, so, you know, presidential control and unlimited ability to remove at will are not constitutionally required. 
Um, and I'll just say that while I was initially worried that this case would be kind of the next domino to fall post-free enterprise fund and SALA law, basically the courts, you know, seeking to narrow the universe of independence and insulation from presidential control that is allowed under the Constitution inside the executive branch, I actually think that's not likely in this case. You know, maybe because the facts are quirky and a little complicated and because it was an acting director who took the main action under review here. Um, so I think this is not likely to be a big blockbuster administrative law case um, coming out of the argument. So I think the court is going to end up saying removal restrictions don't apply to the acting director um, and invoke what uh, Kate, you and I had previously called the Ann Joseph O'Connell doctrine or Ann Joseph O'Connell deference doctrine, where the court just defers to the views of administrative law expert on actings, Ann Joseph O'Connell. Okay, th- now we should, making AJOC deference a thing, I do want to make happen. Yes. I think we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, so can been, we make it happen? I've been trying to make AJOC deference happen since 2006. So I, I think the three of us together. <laughs> look, some of these projects are long term, yes. but change, you know, change, change comes slowly. But I think it's happening. Yeah. I mean, look at Janice. Look at Janice. We got four cases, and we'll get it done. <laughs> right. There we go. Might take a trilogy of sorts. We need to be patient too. Yes. Mm-hmm. It only took four, what, five years. <laughs> we can wait that long. The court also heard Facebook Inc. versus DeGuid. And the question here is another statutory interpretation question, specifically whether the Telephone Consumer Protection Act's ban on robocalling or robotexting cell phones using an automatic telephone dialing system includes using a device that can store and automatically dial telephone numbers without using a random or sequential number generator. And again, All of the justices seemed really flummoxed here by the prospect of a statute that hadn't really kept pace with technology. And it seemed, I thought, that they were really wishing Congress had kind of stepped in to remedy this before it had even gotten to this point. But there was this really funny interchange um, between Justice Thomas and one of the advocates where Justice Thomas had a little bit to say about old school cell phones. Justice Sotomayor brought up the point of the uh, ill fit between uh, this uh, statute from 1991 and current technology, which is uh, advanced in 91 cell phones, or quite a few of them were the size of a loaf of bread, and they're not in widespread use. Lots of people had car phones instead installed in their cars. Um, the we've had in legislation quite a change. The industry's changed. The technology is far beyond anything we could have conceived of in '91. So I thought this was notable. He's taking it all the way back to 1991 um, when the statute was enacted and when I think he joined the court. Was it 19? Yeah, I think it was 1991. Um, And he notes that cell phones, or quite a few of them, were the size of a loaf of bread. And I can confirm that that is exactly the case. You could get a cell phone. It came in its own suitcase and you carried it around in your car in its suitcase. Like, you kids have no idea the kind of... No, as a fellow older worker, I definitely remember that. (laughs) Me, you, and J-Lo both had our own briefcase (laughs) Oh, I didn't have one, but I didn't either. I knew people who did. Who had a cell phone back in 1991? I mean, I thought you actually had no, 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 like a car phone in the mid 90s. I feel like I remember those, although I did. Did you have a car phone in the late 90s? No, No. okay. Like, I I felt like really rich people, like moguls, had car phones. Like, (laughs) I think I knew people who had them, though. Like, I feel like I did. I knew one person that had a cell phone, and it actually was carried around in a suitcase, which is how I knew that. Um, but <laughs> It, like, plugged into the, like, cigarette lighter. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, it burned yeah. your whole battery down. Like, I mean, it took the whole battery <laughs> to power the cell phone. Up. Oh, my God. 
Yes. Um, Graham, okay. <laughs> Leah, the grandmas are telling you our stories, <laughs> the, self, the car phones of our youth. Back in the good old days when he had to walk uphill to school, exactly. both there and back, and cell phones and bags. Yep. Um, Justice Sotomayor also talked technology a little bit. I think you're going to have to answer me more clearly than that. You don't think that cell phone users will do what? So. They won't do automated mass dialing or blitz messaging, which isn't a normal function on a cell phone. Well, I uh, mean, I do email blasts with friends. I do yeah. all sorts of, now with FaceTime and things of that nature, Zoom, we're doing um, basically automatic dialing and, and, um, and people being... Uh, joined together by that process. Question that arose for me is, how do I get on Justice Sotomayor's email blast? Uh, <laughs> curious minds okay, would talk. like to know. <laughs> I suspect Melissa is already on them, although I don't think she's going to tell us if she is. She's just being conspicuously silent. Her face is giving nothing away. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just draw what inferences we will. I am not, I'm not on the email blast. <laughs> Um, the court also heard, once again, the case of Shine versus Archer and White Sales. The question here is whether a provision in an arbitration agreement that says certain kinds of claims are not arbitrable means that an arbitrator should not decide those threshold questions about whether a claim is subject to arbitration. The case also involves the question of whether incorporating the AAA rules on arbitrability evince a clear and unmistakable intention to delegate questions of arbitrability to an arbitrator. The court had previously heard this case and ruled that there was no wholly groundless exception to arbitration, that is, where a claim to arbitration is wholly groundless, um, it can still be decided by an arbitrator and does not have to be decided by a court. We got through a lot. We got the first opinions of the term, so we thought we should at least briefly touch on them. Should we just do like a sentence or two? Yeah, sure. Lightning round. Cool. Okay. And Rutledge versus Pharmaceutical Care Management Association. This was the first opinion in an argued case, unanimous by Justice Sotomayor. And it came in an email blast. It did not come in an email blast. Uh, The court held that ERISA, the Employee uh, Retirement Income Security Act, does not preempt a state law that establishes price floors that pharmacy benefit managers must abide by. Boom. There was also an opinion in United States versus Briggs. This was a case that we also previewed. This was the one about the statute of limitations for rape prosecutions under the Uniform Code of Military Justice for conduct that occurred between 1986 and 2006. Um, The UCMJ states that there is no statute of limitations for crimes punishable by death, and the court held that this language referred not to the Constitution, but to the UCMJ itself, which had, during the relevant time period, stated that rape could be punished by death. This was a unanimous opinion with Justice Alito writing. And we should note that this was a womp womp for our friend Steve Vladek. So sorry, Steve. I was surprised this one was unanimous, honestly, after the argument. But yeah, whatever. Yeah. And Steve was great. I think we said he was yes. great. He did a great job. But you was robbed, Steve. Robbed, <laughs> I say. Uh, okay, next case, Tanzan versus Tanvir. This was another unanimous ruling, this one by Justice Thomas. The court held that money damages are available against federal officials acting in their personal capacity when those officials violate the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. Uh, this is the case uh, involving three Muslim men who say they were put on the no-fly list after they refused to become FBI informants. This was one of the ones that we had some questions about in the preview where we weren't sure if the court's commitment to religious liberty might extend to these particular circumstances. Um, so 
I thought this was like a sort of happy surprise. Um, I was glad to see them being consistent on this. Um, I was also happy, though it does create an oddity that you can get damages against federal officials under RIFRA, but not against states for violations of ARLUPA. Um, and of course, as the court appears greatly poised to expand the scope of RIFRA, and particularly to say it violates RIFRA for federal officials to enforce anti-discrimination norms, uh, there are also concerns about the reach of the opinion, though I still think it is right. Yeah. As to these particular parties, this does yes. seem clearly right. Yeah. yeah. There was also an opinion in an original jurisdiction case involving Texas. Um, this one was not about an attempted coup, but rather a water dispute between Texas and New Mexico. And the court, um, per Justice Kavanaugh, held that the river master, and this is an important note here, in these original jurisdiction cases, the court often appoints a special master to go and investigate because under the court's original jurisdiction, it's actually functioning as a trial court. So the special master is actually doing fact-finding here. So there was a river master appointed, and the river master recommended that New Mexico get credit for the water that it had stored for Texas, but that had later evaporated. Um, and the court, under uh, the opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, affirmed that recommendation. Justice Alito dissented. And Kate, you wanted to note some of the race and gender dynamics around the appointment of the river master. Well, well, only because original jurisdiction cases are just like for a brief moment on people's radar. Like it seems worth noting um, a couple of years ago, I took a look at the Supreme Court's amicus invitations. I've talked about it on the podcast before. And when I started the project, I thought I would also look at the court special master appointments because, you know, there's no formal guidance as to how the court selects these special masters. It's like a, you know, it's a fairly lucrative because you bill the court for your time and certainly prestigious kind of chit that the court hands out. Um, and it turns out the appointment of special masters and river masters is kind of just as cronyist um, and kind of elite kind of clubby. Are you telling just me as, that there's never been a black woman as river master, Kate? Is that what so you're saying? So I haven't updated my research in a few years. So, but I feel like if there had been one in the last couple of years, we would know that fact and we don't. Um, so no, it, you know, these special masters are not necessarily the same profile as these amicus invitations, which are, you know, primarily, you know, recent white male, you know, SCOTUS clerks, like that is their type for amicus invitations, not exclusively, but very predominantly. Special masters are a little bit different. They tend to be practitioners who have some specialization in like water and riparian kind of rights repair yeah so riparian experts um or kind of boundary dispute issues it's pretty specialized um but it's like the, the the race and gender stats on special master appointments are abysmal even worse than their amicus appointment uh stats so um you know, I don't have the race data at the ready, but as to the gender data, I remember that 2008 was the first time the Supreme Court had ever um, appointed a female special master. It was Kristen Miles, a Munger Tolls lawyer. Um, I think she may still be the only one, although they may have, and they've done this hundreds of times. You know, these appointments are these kind of valuable resources that the court hands out, and it can do better on kind of diversifying the people around it, right? It's the law clerks, the lawyers who argue in front of it, and the special master and river masters that it appoints. I, I love That's that all. we've actually had a black woman become vice president before becoming river master. <laughs> like, <laughs> in the world. Okay. Any um, other okay, opinions wait, we want to highlight? I think there's one more. Is it? Yeah. So, so briefly, um, 
we wanted to mention Carney versus Adams, which was a challenge to the Delaware constitutional provision requiring that appointments to the state's major courts uh, reflect partisan balance. Um, and the Supreme Court held that the challenger lacked standing because he was not able and ready to apply for a judgeship on one of the Delaware courts subject to the partisan balance requirements. Um, so Justice Breyer wrote for a unanimous court. Um, I, I'll say it seemed pretty clear to me that this provision of Delaware law requiring partisan balance would stand after the oral arguments, although I couldn't tell whether that, that you know, the case would be disposed of on standing or merits grounds. Uh, the court took the standing route. Um, Leah, what do you think of the opinion? Um, I didn't love it. Uh, Justice Breyer tried to cabinet, saying the decision was highly fact-specific. Um, they relied on the ambiguities in the challenger's statements that he was interested and also his failure to apply to judicial openings while a registered Democrat. And the court also noted the timing in ways that seemed to insinuate that he had become an independent um, and reactivated his bar status in order to bring this challenge. Um, uh, but... I just worry that the case could cause real mischief, given that it was decided at summary judgment. And so all of the inferences were supposed to be drawn against the moving party here, the state. And here the court just seemed to say, well, on our interpretation of the evidence, we just don't think that this uh, plaintiff is seriously injured. You know, maybe sort of bearing out your concern, I think the court did cite Carney versus Adams in the census case, right? Yeah. It's already being deployed for problematic purposes. All right, we made it through all the opinions. Um, and for our court culture segment, more opinions. Right, because we have some summary reversals. I wanted to note one summary reversal in Shin versus Kayer. Uh, this is a Supreme Court summary reversal where the decision reversed a lower court ruling without full briefing and argument, uh, concluding that the Ninth Circuit was wrong to find that the defendant received ineffective assistance of counsel for failing to investigate at the sentencing stage of the proceeding. The defendant was sentenced to death. Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, and Justice Sotomayor noted their dissents. I thought the opinion was significant because it indicates something that the 6-3 conservative court will be able to do, like a new power that it has, which is it will find it much easier to summarily reverse lower court decisions than a 5-4 conservative court. By custom, summary reversals require six votes. Summary reversals are, again, cases decided without argument just on the briefs. So previously, the court's conservatives would have had to find a sixth vote from a more liberal justice. Now that's no longer necessary. And I think this will operate to the further detriment of habeas petitioners, civil rights plaintiffs, and litigants hoping not to be forced to arbitrate their claims. The court also continued to deny requests for relief or stays from defendants who've been sentenced to death, including federal defendants um, who are still being executed in these waning days of the lame duck Trump administration. Um, there is every reason to think that perhaps Joe Biden as president will reinstate the moratorium on federal executions. But again, the idea that there are continued executions during this lame duck period is really unprecedented. And one of the executions that occurred that really garnered a lot of outsized attention was the execution of Brandon Bernard, who was 18 at the time of the crime for which he was convicted. And he was known to have a limited role in this particular crime. It was a carjacking and murder. And so there was a lot of outcry about this particular execution. Um, also of note, the court also vacated lower court decisions upholding coronavirus restrictions against religious liberty challenges in Colorado, California, and New Jersey. Then in a 
super curious order. Uh, it left in place a Sixth Circuit decision upholding the Kentucky governor's school closure restrictions. Um, a religious school had challenged them in the unsigned order. The court basically said the order was about to expire um, and the school term ending. And Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch noted their dissents. I just also wanted to call attention to one of the briefs filed in this case. This was filed on behalf of Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, and it was filed by Joshua Matz of Kaplan Hecker Fink. And this was just an incredibly meticulous, detailed, fact-specific brief. I think they actually cited more press releases from the governor's office than they did actual cases. And they didn't cite Jacobson at all. So I think we can query whether Jacobson versus Massachusetts is officially dead on arrival. Um, but this may be a template for future challenges for states to really, again, focus on the facts and laying out the specific circumstances that they undertook in making these decisions about whether to close or reopen. Yeah. Although Alito does say, like, please, please come back. You know, all this does is defer the decision. Yes. Like, our doors are wide open if you guys want to come back. Um, if it turns out the governor doesn't reopen schools after the holidays. So this has been a long one. It's probably <laughs> all we have time for. Um, thank you all for listening. Special thanks to our Glow supporters who make the show possible. You can sign up to support the show at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny or rate us on iTunes if you enjoy the show. Thank you to our producer, Melody Rowell, and thanks to Eddie Cooper for making our music. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.